welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and unpack it into relatable concepts. I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and today we're talking about breast augmentation. We're specifically talking about cosmetic augmentation. I'll devote a separate podcast to breast reconstruction after cancer later in the season. As always, remember that this podcast is not intended to give formal medical advice. Instead, you can use it to gain insight, whether you're actually considering a surgery or you're just curious. So settle in for a listen and enjoy. At the time of this recording, statistics by the American Society of Plastic Surgeons showed that breast augmentation was the number one most popular procedure of all cosmetic surgeries. And over 300,000 were done in a year. 300,000! That's a lot of implants running around this country. In today's podcast, we'll explore this common surgery in more detail. We'll discuss who's a candidate, what's involved, what to expect afterwards, implant types and choices, whether there are alternatives to implants, how long they last, and potential complications. To begin, breast augmentation is simply a procedure that surgically places something beneath the breast to bring the breast forward and enlarge it. Typically, an implant is used for this purpose. There are primarily two groups of people interested in augmentation. The first is those who have never been satisfied with the size of their breasts after they developed, and they don't feel comfortable in their clothing, or they just prefer larger breasts. And the second is those who lost the breast volume they originally had after childbearing and nursing. There is also a smaller third group that consists of patients with a congenital, meaning by birth, abnormality that resulted in one breast not developing or being much smaller than the other. They can sometimes benefit from an implant placed in the smaller side. How is an augmentation done? Well, Breast augmentation involves a relatively short surgery that makes a small incision, typically underneath the breast, close to the crease. This incision gives good visualization of the future breast pocket for the implant, and it's pretty well hidden. Though some surgeons will place the incision in the armpit area, or around the nipple, or less commonly, and only with specialized instrumentation, around the belly button. That last one can only be done with a saline implant. Then through dissection, a pocket is created either underneath the breast itself or else underneath the pectoralis muscle that sits just below the breast. The chosen implant is then sterilely placed into the pocket with minimal touch to avoid contamination. After this, the wound is stitched closed and the patient goes first to the recovery room, then home, since it's typically an outpatient procedure. But driven home by someone else, of course, most often, a general anesthetic is used, but sometimes not. In any case, the patient will be placed in a light compression dressing or surgical bra, and they go home to recuperate. They usually come to the surgeon's office the next day for a quick check. Stitches are often absorbable, but if not, they would be removed in one to two weeks. At that point, scar care can begin to help minimize future scar appearance, and breast massage may be recommended as well to help avoid capsular contracture. We'll discuss contractor later in the podcast. It may take a few weeks for the implants to settle into their intended position, especially if they were placed under the muscle. Much of the swelling will dissipate after a few weeks, and final results are usually reliable by three months. As for return to work, 
It may be anywhere from a couple of days to a couple of weeks, depending upon how physical the job is. It's best to avoid any strenuous activity or bouncing exercise for a good three weeks, and even then proceed only with a very good bra support. And I'd like to take a moment to shed light on an issue that is very important to patients, but to which they often don't pay much attention until after their augmentation, and that is the question of symmetry. Let me tell you something you may not realize. No one has perfectly symmetrical breasts beforehand, and they are not going to be perfectly symmetrical afterwards, though we do try to get things as even as possible. Everyone has some degree of asymmetry to start with, and it's just a question of how much difference there is. For some people, it's a lot, so okay, they would notice. But for some, it's just a subtle difference in breast volume or positioning on the chest wall or an underlying difference in the ribs or spine. We don't notice it because we don't spend all day looking in the mirror, but we sure would afterwards. After surgery may be the first time a patient really takes a close look and notices some differences. Sometimes an augmentation procedure can be expanded to try to adjust the shape and size of one breast as compared to the other, but a straightforward augmentation can't really change chest wall positioning that much and certainly can't change skeletal differences from side to side. This is not a big deal, but something to keep in mind when assessing postoperative results. Okay, let's now talk about implant choices. People so often think that implants come in cup sizes, like bras do, but that is not the case. By the way, you may not realize that the cup size of a natural breast is determined by the difference between the circumferential measurement around the rib cage versus around the breasts. It's that ratio that makes someone a certain cup size not just the size of the breast per se. In fact, if three different women all had the exact same breast, they would likely wear different cup sizes because their rib cage width is different. And there's even more variability than that, as any woman has discovered while trying to go bra shopping at different places. So if it's not by cup size, how are implants categorized then? Well, by six features. Number one, volume, measured in cc's. Number two, shape, round options versus teardrop or anatomic options. Number three, projection, moderate or full. Number four, filling, silicone or saline. Number five, consistency, or how thick the silicone filling is. And number six, type of surface covering, smooth versus textured. With all that variability, you can just imagine that there are hundreds of different implants available. It's virtually impossible for a potential patient to try to navigate through all of that and choose an implant. Best to rely on the wisdom of your experienced surgeon who will help choose the right one based on your needs and preferences and based on the amount of breast tissue you start out with. Okay, why don't we break it down a bit further though and discuss some of those categories so you'll really understand the rationale of choice. Shape of the implant is usually either round, meaning like a donut without a hole, not a baseball, or teardrop shape, meaning from the side it looks natural or anatomic, with a downward slope towards more filling at the bottom and less at the top. Some people like that look, but others feel the whole reason they are doing this procedure is to have more fullness at the top. Projection has to do with the physical dimensions of the sac the implant is covered with. It can make the implant stick out more, if you will, or else be less projecting, depending upon the look the patient is going for. Next. Filling is either saline or now much more commonly silicone, which tends to feel a bit more natural and like a true breast. Both have the same sac or shell material composition. It's just a filling that's different. 
There has been some controversy about silicone gel in the past, but the FDA has confirmed that studies have not identified a direct link to illness. If you're interested in more detail, I discuss this issue in the next podcast episode, number five. Consistency of the implant refers to the thickness of the silicone gel in the implant. It can be different based on the amount of cross-linking when the implant was manufactured. That's nice to have a little more thickness of the gel to help the implant hold its shape, but it must be balanced with softness and natural feel for the implant. And the last feature is the surface covering of the implant. It's most often smooth, but not uncommonly in the past, a textured surface had been used to help the implant stay in put and keep from sliding around its pocket. These days, however, a controversy has arisen with some rare reports of a type of lymphoma called ALCL being associated with the textured implants, prompting one manufacturer in particular to take these textured implants off the market. Again, I discuss that issue in more detail in the next episode, number five, which is all about implants. Okay, now what about where to place the implant? The choices are under the pec muscle, called subpectoral, or on top of the muscle and just under the breast, called subglandular. Which is best? While they both have features that could be advantageous in certain cases, I would say subpectoral is more common, again that's under the muscle, because it has a lower risk of capsular contracture with it, and there is a thicker layer of tissue covering the implant, so less likely to feel it or see it. With that being said, the muscle does not fully cover the implant. It's only so wide, but the majority of implant is indeed covered. So with those advantages, why would you ever want the implant in the subglandular position just underneath the breast alone? Well, this positioning is helpful if the breast has developed a little bit of ptosis or sagging, if you will. The breast tissue and skin are somewhat stretchier than the underlying muscle, so they can drape themselves around the implant better than muscle can. That may produce a little bit of nipple elevation, but this phenomenon is limited. A subglandular procedure will not substitute for a breast lift if one is really needed. And because the breast will stretch out more with the implant in the subglandular position, again just under the breast and not the muscle, it will probably settle or sag a bit faster due to the effects of gravity with a now heavier breast. Many times a combination of these two positional approaches can be utilized, called a biplanar placement, which leaves the implant partially under the muscle and partially under the breast. That may also help hold off a breast lift for a while, but can lead to some bottoming out of the breast over time, which results in the lower part of the breast stretching out and the nipple then riding up to a position that seems too high. But the nuanced pros and cons will be a little different for each person, so the choice is best discussed during formal consultation with your plastic surgeon. And a quick side note, I will cover mastopexy or the breast lift procedure in episode 8, but I'd like you to know that often a breast augmentation and breast lift can be done in conjunction with each other. Moving on, some people have asked if there is an alternative to using an implant to enlarge the breast, and there certainly is. It's a less common process called fat grafting. This involves harvesting fat from another part of the body through liposuction, then collecting the fat, sterilely washing it, and packing it into syringes. Then this nice healthy fat is injected into the breast to increase its volume. Sounds great, but there are some downsides. Not all of the injected fat may survive in its new home, so if the body resorbs some, the procedure may have to be repeated to get to the desired size. Also, 
If there are fluctuations in weight over time, this may affect the size of the breast accordingly. If a person does choose to have a breast augmentation with implants, how long will the results last? Well, that depends on several factors. Our genetics largely determine when skin starts to lose elasticity, and we see these effects not just in the face or other parts of the body, but in the breast too. Over the years, tissues may stretch and perkiness may be reduced, but the timing of this varies quite a bit from person to person. Also, the larger the implant that was placed, the more gravity will have an effect on it. And again, weight changes will affect the breast shape and volume as well. But let's assume all those things stayed pretty stable. What about the implants themselves? Do they have an expiration? Well, no, not truly in the sense we usually think of it, but most implant manufacturers will recommend changing out the implants after 10 years. Now, that doesn't mean a patient has to change them out, especially if the breasts have maintained their nice shape and stayed soft, but if there have been changes noticed, or a patient wants a different size or now needs a lift, then this may be perfect timing. Bottom line, the implants are not meant to last forever, even though some patients have kept them well over 10 years. Lastly, let's discuss some of the things that could go wrong. Complications are not that common with an augmentation, but it's important to talk about them. Beyond the general complications that can occur with any surgery, today we're talking about some that are specific to augmentation with implants, and those are rippling, capsular contracture, and rupture. Rippling refers to a somewhat broad, wrinkled appearance that part of the breast may take on in certain positions. It's more common with saline implants because the filling is more watery, but still can occur with silicone implants as well. A primary cause can be the implant being closer to the skin's surface and not having a very thick coverage by the body's tissues. This is a little more likely if the implant is in the subglandular position, again, on top of the muscle and just under the breast. But it can still occur if the implant is subpectoral, especially in areas where the muscle can't fully cover the implant or if the overlying muscle has thinned out over time from stretching over the weight of the implant. In other cases, it may be related to an implant, particularly saline, being underfilled. As an analogy, think of the wrinkled appearance of an underfilled water balloon that goes away after it is filled with more water. Rippling is difficult to combat without a revision surgery to either tighten up the breast skin, such as with a breast lift, or else placement of an additional lining layer between the implant and the overlying tissues. But depending upon the location, a small amount of rippling can be hidden pretty well with a push-up bra that tightens the skin. Occasionally filler or fat injections might help disguise it if there is a strong desire to avoid further surgery. Next is capsular contracture. I also discuss this in an upcoming podcast episode number five, but briefly, a capsule is a rind of scar tissue that the body normally forms around the implant to wall it off. That's fine if it stays nice and thin and pliable, but in some cases it thickens up and not only feels hard, but may start to distort the shape of the breast. That's a capsular contracture. Placement of the implant under the muscle and breast massage can help avoid this, but there is no guarantee, unfortunately. Early treatment may be with medication to slow down the contracture, but more advanced cases usually require surgery to treat this, whether it's just to release the tightness of the scar, called capsulotomy, or to fully remove the rind of scar, called capsulectomy. The latter might sound like the way to go, 
but it's a bigger procedure. And keep in mind that the full removal of this tissue makes the remaining covering over the implant even thinner. If someone does suspect they have a capsular contracture, best to check in with their surgeon to determine the best course of action. Lastly, what about implant rupture? Spontaneous rupture relates to a mechanical failure of the implant, and that is pretty unusual. Various implant manufacturers report a range anywhere from a 1% to 11% chance of that happening within the first 10 years. The chance increases as the implant ages, but is still pretty low. Now, a traumatic rupture is a bit different than a spontaneous rupture. It could result from a severe blow to the chest, something with a lot of force behind it that could break a bruiser rib, like a car accident or horseback riding injury. I did have one patient whose implant ruptured from a high-speed soccer ball hitting her in the chest. But don't worry, if someone gives you a big bear hug or accidentally elbows you in the chest, it's not going to rupture the implant. Those implants are designed to be pretty resilient. It would take a lot more force than that. So what does someone do if they have a rupture? Well, if it's a saline implant, they'll want to treat it right away because as the spilled saline is absorbed by the body like IV fluid, the breast will take on a flat appearance pretty quickly. With silicone implants, though, any leaked silicone tends to just sit in the breast pocket unless it is left there for a long, long time. Someone with a ruptured silicone implant may not realize there is a problem, so it's important to have a periodic exam or radiological study for maintenance. If a silicone implant is discovered to be ruptured, the FDA recommends its replacement or removal. Moving on, I do want to say a word about mammograms. Some people have worried about the accuracy of mammogram readings after having implants. Frankly, there are so many people in the world with implants now that the mammogram technicians and radiologists have gotten quite accomplished at performing and reading the mammograms with proficiency. Thankfully, there does not seem to be an increase in undiscovered breast cancers due to difficulty with mammogram technique. And let's briefly discuss pregnancy with implants. In general, there don't seem to be problems directly associated with pregnancy. The breasts will enlarge like they typically would with pregnancy, and the ability to breastfeed would be expected to be the same as that of the general population. But after delivery, when the breast size goes back down, breast shape may need to be reevaluated. Sometimes the overlying breast skin envelope can be stretched out or not bounce back to its original shape. In those situations, Consideration is given to exchanging the implant size or having a breast lift if needed. Your plastic surgeon will have the best guidance on this matter based on your individual needs and desires. Hey, we've covered quite a bit of ground with our topic today. The takeaway message is that breast augmentation can be a wonderful tool to aid someone for whom breast size and shape is extremely important. There are lots of people out there who are so pleased with their results. Overall, it's considered a safe and rewarding procedure, but as I pointed out, it's important to have a good baseline understanding of the pertinent issues so that a future consultation can be even more productive. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded. Decoded.